Well, morning, everyone. Do you know what? I just love it when the worship and the word tie in together. Much of what God has been speaking to us about this morning, about coming back into his presence and reminding us of his holiness and how awesome he is, which is going to come through today. So as Rob said already, today we are continuing our series called Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. If you're a visitor here this morning, warm welcome to you. As a church, we've been journeying together and exploring what the Old Testament says about Jesus. It says that Jesus is the center point of Scripture. It's not just the New Testament. He is the center point of the entire Bible. Jesus isn't just our hero rescuer appearing for a short time in the Bible, but he is the one that the whole Bible is about. He's the one that we are rescued into and rescued for. And last week we looked at the law, that the law brought death, that the law was introduced as a way for people to achieve a standard of holiness. But as it was mentioned last week, that there were 613 individual laws. No one could achieve perfect holiness, and the law required that sacrifices would be made to atone for our sin. But thank God for Jesus, because he was perfect in holiness. Uh, He met the standard for us, and he sacrificed himself as the one true offering, the one who fulfilled the law and brought us life. And hallelujah, because that is a life that we can enjoy today by his spirit. And so today we're going to be looking at the tabernacle or the temple, and we're going to look at what the tabernacle is or was and how it points us to Jesus. Church, Jesus is the true and better tabernacle. He invites us to be built into him as living stones. So if you have your Bibles with you, can you open them up to Exodus 25? And it's verse 8 that we're going to be reading from. Now in the book of Exodus, there are 15 chapters that talk about the plans and the building of a tabernacle. You'll be pleased to know that we are not going to be reading 15 chapters this morning, but we're in fact just going to be reading one verse. So Exodus 25, verse 8. says this, Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. And just to massively paraphrase or give you an idea of how some of the chapters start, in verse 10 it goes on to say, Have the people make an ark of acacia wood, a sacred chest 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Goes on later on in verse 23, the plans for the table. Then make a table of acacia wood, 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Goes to talk about the plans for the lampstand later on. Make a lampstand of pure hammered gold. 
make the entire lampstand and its decorations of one piece. And then again at the end, be sure that you make everything according to the pattern that I have shown you here on this mountain. So I've obviously massively paraphrased some of the next few chapters. But here, God is giving Moses some very detailed instructions on how to build the tabernacle. So what does a tabernacle look like? Well, a tabernacle is described as a tent or a meeting place, an inner sanctuary or a place of residence or dwelling place. My favorite description, a portable earthly dwelling place of God. And this is how God met with his people. In Genesis, if you think back to the story of Adam and Eve and how God tabernacled with them in the Garden of Eden. In fact, the Hebrew word for tabernacle is mishkan. It means to dwell among them. And that was the original tabernacle. This was God dwelling with his creation or his people. And that was, obviously, until sin came along. So sin puts that separation between God and us. But because God is a holy God, he could no longer be around them because they were sinful. So God could no longer tabernacle amongst his people because he can't tolerate sin. And yet his desire is to dwell with us because he loves us. And so the tabernacle was another way that our holy God could come and be amongst his people. So if we move to the next slide. So this is what a tabernacle would have looked like. It was approximately 100 cubits long and 50 cubits wide. Now just to give you an idea of what a cubit is, if you take the measurement from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger, Roughly, that is about a cubit long. So 100 cubits is about 46, approximately 46 metres long and about 23 metres wide. And it was richly furnished with gold and silver and other valuable materials. Even the veils and the curtains had very detailed measurements and were made from specific coloured materials, such as purple or deep red, representing God's character, you know, his royalty or his forgiveness. It contains the main entrance gate, if you can see, just down here. Uh, leads to the slaughter tables. We've got the brazen altar just up there. Uh, what we call the brazen lava, or this kind of sort of uh, place where ceremonial uh, washing and cleansing occurred. You've got the outer curtain, which leads to the second room uh, where the table of shoebread and the lampstand were kept and the altar of incense. And then right at the back, through the veil, you've got where the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy of Holies was. So the strict instructions in the book of Exodus on how to manage the tabernacle. Only the Levites could put it up they could only be the ones to take it down. There was no other tribe of Israel or no other tribes of God's people that were allowed to handle it. And if they did, they faced death. Numbers 1 verse 48 to 51 talks about that anyone else 
handling the tabernacle would be executed. I mean, that is severe. There are strict instructions around the making of incense and that if it wasn't made in the correct way, you were cast out. It's game over. There are specific measurements. This tabernacle required precision. It required valuable materials. God has taken no shortcuts in making or in instructing the the building of a tabernacle. So why does God insist on the tabernacle being made so precisely? Well, it's because he is a holy God. He's our majesty. He is sovereign over all. I love the worship this morning. It talks about him being the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He has a holy standard. And yes, he is our Father. Yes, he is kind. Yes, he's caring. Yes, he is compassionate. And as the song says, he's slow to anger and he's rich in love. But he's also so much more than that. There is an awe about God. He is awesome. And he demands a holy standard because he himself is holy. And so the tabernacle is patterned on what exists in heaven. So how does this point to Jesus? Well, I said it is patterned on what exists in heaven. There is a tabernacle in heaven, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the true and better tabernacle, and everything in this points to Jesus. Let's start with the entrance curtain. So we're just down here on the bottom right. So the only way to access the tabernacle was through the entrance curtain. There was no other way of getting in there unless you went through the entrance. It was the only way into the courtyard, the only way of getting into the earthly dwelling place of God. Again, this is signifying or pointing to that Jesus is the only way into God's presence. In John 10 verse 9, Jesus said, I am the gate. He also talks about, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And just something to note about the entrance curtain is unlike the hangings at the side and unlike the hangings at the back, this curtain could be drawn up. It could be put aside at pleasure. It didn't have to stay shut. It could be wide open. Again, everyone is welcome to enter into that tabernacle outer court. And the curtain of the outer court of a tabernacle was never was sometimes it was normally closed, but never locked away. All you had to do is reach out your hand and push that curtain aside. And it is the same when it comes to Jesus. You could just walk and enter into him. So next, talk about the brazen altar in the middle there. So once inside the courtyard, there were tables for slaughtering and there was the brazen altar. Now this altar was made of bronze and it was for the burning of various different offerings. So you might be thinking that the tabernacle would be clean, 
because it's got to meet God's holy standards. But this part of it isn't. In fact, it was far from clean. It was stained with blood from the various animals that were being slaughtered. Now, if you had livestock in those days, you'd be wanting to keep your family in order, wouldn't you? For anyone who's got kids or works with kids or have got uh, nieces or nephews or grandchildren, you run around them all the time. Don't touch anything. Don't even think about saying what I think you're going to say. You'd be doing your absolute best not to let them sin and not sin yourself. Because don't forget that there were 613 laws. Every day would involve sacrifice because people would mess up every day. And you imagine living like that, constantly in despair. But hallelujah for Jesus, who is our perfect sacrifice, who himself was slaughtered as a pleasing offering to our holy God for the forgiveness of our sins. And just as the sacrifices were laid on the altar, our perfect sacrifice carried his own altar and willingly laid himself on it to bear our sin and be that perfect offering once and for all. Amen for Jesus. So, moving on to the brazen lava, or laver. So this, this basin was made of brass, and it was positioned between the altar and the holy place. So here's an interesting fact about this, uh, this brazen lava, this kind of wash basin. Is that in Exodus 38, verse 8, it talks about it being made from the looking glasses of women. It says, And he made the laver of brass, and the foot of it out of brass, of the looking glasses of the women assembling. So what's another word for a looking glass? A mirror. So the brass was taken from the mirrors of women, so it was not just men who were involved in the building of a tabernacle. And what does a mirror represent? Well, it represents that you can see yourself. You can see your imperfections. It represents vanity. And it was a great sacrifice for the women to surrender their mirrors for the construction of the tabernacle. But it's what God instructed. Perhaps a sign that God wanted them to focus their attention less on their own imperfections but to embrace their imperfections and seize themselves as God sees them through Christ. Because Jesus is a form of looking glass. Not only does he reflect God's character to us, but he also reflects our character to God through him. And this also speaks of sanctification too. The priests would wash their hands and their feet after sacrificing on the altar. Can you imagine for a second how many times that they're washing their hands a day? Their hands must have been red raw. I'd be interested, I'd be interested to know what kind of hand cream they used. <laughs> but this points to the one 
who would not only come and wash us clean on the outside, but would come to wash us clean on the inside too. Through his sanctification work of the cross. Again, amen to Jesus. Let's talk about the table and the shoe bread. So this table held the bread, and the bread was prepared and consumed by the priests. There was one loaf for each tribe, reminding us that God is our provider for our everyday needs. Ultimately, this points to the one who is the true bread of heaven, the provider of all our needs. And that's Jesus. He, the one, is truth, the one who is truth. Jesus referred to himself as the bread of life. And he said that if we eat of this bread, we will live forever. What's, there, what's bread there to do? What well, is there to fill you up? And in saying that we will live forever, it's saying, that, it's saying basically that if we feast on what he has for us, if we feast on his word, if we feast on his promises, if we feast on his truth, basically, read your Bible. If you feast on what God's got for you, it will lead to eternal life. Jesus is the provider of all of our needs. Let's talk about the lampstand. So the lampstand is kind of in that second room. So the lampstand was made from gold, which was one of the most purest metals back then. It can withstand a huge amount of pressure. It can also withstand fire. And God gave specific instructions that the light of the lampstand was never to go out, day or night. So the golden lampstand was continually burning. Again, it's a reminder or it points to the one who said, I am the light of the world. The one who withstood the pressure to sin. The one who faced every trial and was pure through it. And what does light do? Well, light both exposes things for what they are and it also shows us where to go. And Jesus is the same. Jesus both shines on us to expose us for who we are or expose our sin and lights our path so that we can see where to go and where not to go. Amen to Jesus. So let's talk about the altar of incense. So the altar of incense on which the priests burned incense allowed them to take the aroma of incense into that second room. Again, it's pointing us to Jesus. It reminds us that Jesus is our great intercessor. He is our mediator. It is through his work on the cross that he takes our needs before the Father. It's through his work on the cross that he's accomplished that. And the altar of incense was placed before the mercy seat of the ark. Again, it's just a picture of our own intercessor standing in the presence of our Father. And the incense was 
to be burnt or being burned continually on that altar, which again just describes to us or points to us Jesus' ongoing nature of his intercession and of his mediation. Church, each of these items had a great significance in revealing a lot about what Christ has fulfilled for us through his work on the cross. Everything we see in that tabernacle is a shadow or, or a picture of the one to come. Jesus is the great fulfillment of the Old Testament symbols. Everything in the tabernacle is fulfilled in him. On the cross, Jesus completed the work as a great mediator between God and us. And tabernacle furniture was a constant reminder of man's sinfulness and a need for a saviour. And for us today, it's just a great reminder of what Jesus has done for us, what he's fulfilled. He's awesome, isn't he? And when Jesus came to earth, he revolutionised the concept of the tabernacle. He fulfilled the Old Testament tabernacle and came as that portable, earthly dwelling place of God. He is our Emmanuel. He is God with us. He said, I am the gate for my sheep. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 2, verse 19, Jesus drove out the traders from the temple. And as he was doing so, he said to those who challenged him, those who opposed him, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And people thought that he was talking about the physical temple, but actually he was speaking of himself as a temple as a tabernacle, God dwelling within him. But just as he clears out the traders from the physical temple, the earthly dwelling place of God, it also speaks to us of not allowing sin to take over what God has ordained as his possession, which is us. 1 Peter 2 verse 4 to 5 talks about Christ being the living cornerstone and that we are living stones that God is building into a spiritual temple. And church, there is an ongoing need for us to continually examine our own lives to ensure that the traders of our own temples or our own tabernacles don't worm their way in. On the next slide, there's this great quote by Paul Tripp in his book called All, Why It Matters for Everything That We Think and Say and Do. It says this, Only when all of God rules your heart will you be able to keep the pleasures of a material world in their proper place. Jesus teaches us that we are all temples of God. God lives and works through us. We are just as holy as the tabernacles. 
We are made specifically, we are made with precision, and we are all valuable to God. And church, he has taken no shortcuts in making us. In the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, verse 1 to 4, it talks about a greater tabernacle to come. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and earth, for the old heaven and earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. In Revelation it describes that there will be no temple in the new Jerusalem because God and the Lamb and his people are its temple. There'll be no need for a meeting place because we will be permanently in God's presence. Everyone will be clean, built as one true temple. So how do we apply this today? Could we just go back to slide two? The tabernacle not only points us to Jesus, but it's a beautiful image of our own journey with Christ. The entrance curtain, just a simple step of walking through into the courtyard where we accept Jesus into our lives can be a difficult one. Perhaps we can't see past that entrance curtain and perhaps we're anxious about what's on the other side. But we see other people walking through and we want to take a glimpse around the side. But we just miss out. Perhaps we've been a Christian for a long time and we find ourselves in this situation. Again, just put your faith back in Jesus. He's a provider of everything we need. Once we're inside the courtyard and we look around and we see the slaughter tables, perhaps a greater picture of the sacrifices that we make when we become a Christian, there will be things that we need to lay down or perhaps put to death. Maybe we've been a Christian for years, but there are still those areas of our life that we haven't quite let go of. Or if indeed we are sacrificing, what kind of things are we laying down? What kind of things are we sacrificing? What are we giving up? What are we laying down on the altar for God? Do we feel the cost of those sacrifices? Something I want to mention about this courtyard is that it's a bit of a messy place. And sometimes we have those messy areas of our lives and we think, can't honestly find Jesus in this. But in fact, the tabernacle is a great reminder to us that even in the mess, we can still see Jesus. What about the ceremonial washing? What about that wash basin? Do we understand that by accepting Jesus into our lives means 
that we are totally washed clean. But are we striving for our own cleanliness? I must read the Bible every day. Or perhaps I must give money to the poor. How about that looking glass, that mirror? What is your looking glass? What is your mirror? Are you looking at your husbands? Are you looking to your wives? Are you looking to your friends or your family for your affirmation? Perhaps are you listening to what's on social media? Do you want to know how perfect you are? Church, ask God. Because God sees you as perfect. He sees you as beautiful. He sees you as loved. He sees that you are cherished. He sees that you are valued, that you are courageous, that you are bold, that you are fierce. He sees that you are forced to be reckoned with. And you might say, yeah, God, I hear all that, but life is a bit of a mess. I'm feeling a bit broken. I don't know what to do. And God says, rest assured, my son was broken for you so that I can dwell within you and love you just as you are. Well, how about our holy place? What's in your holy place? What's on the table? Is it a shoe bread? Is it a reminder that God is our provider and he not only provides for our everyday needs, but he has sent his son, the true manna of heaven, for us? Is it the word of God? Are you feasting on God's word and remembering his promises? Or are we feasting on what social media is saying? Is it our money? Is it our work? Or perhaps your table is empty. Maybe you've had something in your life that you've depended on and now it's gone. Again, let's come back to Jesus. He is the provider of all our needs. How about your lampstand? What kind of light are you shining? Is it the light of Jesus? Is it the joy of knowing him and the outpouring of his transforming love? Is it a light that shines in the darkest places like your work or your family? Is it the light that also reveals a person's sin and points them to correction? Or is it a light of fear? Or is it a light of anxiety? Or is it a light of depression? Perhaps your light is dimmed. Or maybe today you feel cloaked or burdened by a darkness that you can't lift. Again, church, there's that invitation to come back to Jesus. Because Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Church, Jesus is the true and better tabernacle. And he is inviting us to be built into him as living stones. We are all temples or tabernacles of God's presence, of his Holy Spirit. And through what Jesus has accomplished for us, we are all portable, earthly dwelling places of God. I'll have the band back up, please. Could we all stand?
All throughout the worship, there's been an invitation to come. To come back to Jesus. To come into his presence. Come into the presence of a holy God. He is awesome. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is majestic. He is sovereign. But he's also a God of love. And it is out of that love that he desires to dwell within us. Jesus is described as the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And if this morning perhaps you're feeling a bit rejected, perhaps you're feeling on the, the, uh, the outskirts and you're wondering what to do, come back to Jesus. He himself was rejected and yet he is inviting us to join in with him because he is building something greater. There's an invitation to come afresh. If you don't yet know Jesus, and perhaps you're wondering what all of this is about, come and experience him. Come and accept him into your life. Perhaps this is your 20th time, 100th time. We can come back to Jesus and experience all of what he's got, got, uh, got for us. Because he is good. And I just want to pray for us. If we could all close our eyes and just open up our hands.